are the end of our series in this book. First Corinthians chapter 15. Start reading in verse 35. Next week we're going to begin a series in the book of, or in the book of, we're going to begin an Advent series. We're going to call it Kingdom Come. And what we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus, when Jesus comes on the scene at his first Advent, he is fulfilling the story of Scripture. He is its height. He is its fulfillment. We're going to see what that means when Jesus comes to bring the kingdom. So it's actually going to be a series kind of sweeping through all of Scripture. I hope that you can make it over the next four Sundays. And then we'll finish this series uh, on the last Sunday of December uh, by looking at 1 Corinthians 16. Before we uh, read God's Word, let's pray. God in heaven, now as we turn to your Word, we ask for your help. We ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that you would work in us. Open our hearts. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the resurrection and what it means for us. Would you bless our time, bless the reading, the hearing and the preaching of your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're, uh, if you don't have a Bible, please grab the one in the rack, uh, in front of you. you can, page 961 at the very bottom is where you'll find us. Paul says this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood 
cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. just want to remind you of what we've seen so far. In fact, it's kind of fitting That as we approach a season where we focus on Jesus' birth, that we take a little bit of time to remember where Jesus' birth is taking us. That Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is just a part of the grand story. It's just the beginning of what would eventually be Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And that life, death, and resurrection, of course, then leads to it for those of us who believe in Jesus, also for our life and death and resurrection. So it's good that we finish uh, with, uh, that we that we look at the resurrection before we head back to the birth story. But I want you to remember so far what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, that Paul is dealing with people, right, in this letter of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with several problems. This, this small church, this young church had several issues, right? It's a very dysfunctional church. And there were several things that they were having to deal with. And probably the deadliest of all that Paul saves for the last is they had, they were denying, or there were some in the church who were denying the resurrection. Uh, that they were denying that it even happened. You can look at that and see it in verse 12 of this chapter, right? Paul says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? So Paul is dealing with that. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at how Paul showed us that the, the resurrection is key to the gospel. If Jesus does not come back from the dead, if Jesus is still in the grave, then we are still in our sins. If Jesus is still in the grave, then we are, we are still in our sins. Sin has not been paid for or dealt with. And so we are of all people most to be pitied. That if you hope in Jesus and Jesus is still dead, then your hope is empty. It's pointless. It's fruitless. And that's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This week, Paul now begins to answer a different question. Right? The question now, uh, he's anticipating that his objectors would say something like, Okay, great. There's a resurrection. What does that mean? What in the world does that even look like? How's that going to happen? And so now Paul begins to answer that question. And what we're going to do is we're going to see uh, three ways that I think Paul answers that for us, right? Uh, the resurrection means that we will be changed into something better. Now we're talking about our 
resurrection on the last day, not Jesus's. Jesus's leads to ours. But for us, what does it mean that we will be raised from the dead? One, we will be changed into something better. Two, we will finally see the end of death. And then three, it means that we can stand firm in the present. We can be firm in the present. Because of what God will do in the future, we can be firm in the present. So we will be changed, we will see the end of death, and we can be firm. Look again at uh, verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul says, you fool. He's a little passionate about this. And he draws their attention to a common principle in agriculture, right? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, if you've ever planted anything, whether you're a farmer or a preschooler, right? You know that when you put a seed in the ground, what you get is something better, right? Something grows out of that seed, something better, something more glorious. The seed itself dies. We could say that, right? The seed, uh, Paul says, when you plant that seed in the ground, it actually dies, right? The husk falls away. uh, It decays in the ground. But what comes out of the middle is a new life. Paul is saying that when I die, this body will be planted in the ground like a seed. And what will be raised will be something new, something better. Now, in one sense, it will still be the same, right? Uh, There will be some continuity. I'll still be me, but I will be something better. Just like a seed when planted in the ground yields something better. He gives us a few illustrations, right? He illustrates this different ways. And the first one he mentions there is a seed in a tree, right? I don't know if you'll be able to uh, to see this. Maybe those who are up front can uh, can see and relay it to those in the back. What what are these? Acorns, Acorns right? Or in the or in the Alabama vernacular, acorns. Okay, acorns. Uh, now, when you plant. Uh, when you plant an acorn in the ground, do you get an acorn out of the ground? No, right? The kids are like, yeah, the, the kids are on it now. Okay. No, right? You get one of those. That's where I got this, right? You get an oak tree. Now, an acorn really isn't much to look at. No offense to the humble acorn, but it's not very large. It doesn't really have much beauty, But an oak tree, on the other hand, can be quite impressive. So, Paul says, is our current bodies with the body that is to come, right? We plant a seed in the ground, uh, but what we get comes, what we get is so much better. Now, it's still the same, I guess you would say, I'm not a biologist, but I think you would say it's still the same organism. If, If you plant an acorn in the ground, you will get an oak tree. Do not plant this in the ground if you want an apple tree. You will have to plant apple apple seeds for that, right? If you want a peach tree, you got to plant a peach pit, right? Uh, so it's the same, but different. It is the same, but it is different. It is better. 
Paul also talks about the different kinds of, uh, different kinds of animals and the different kinds of heavenly bodies, right? He points to the earth and how the glory of the earth is different from the glory of the, the stars in the heavens. And even the sun and the moon are different from each other. And all the other stars, right? Some are brighter, some are less bright. What Paul is doing is he's pointing at the wide diversity of bodies, right, of glories in the created world. And he's trying, and he's trying to say, right, use your imagination. Look around you. If God can take matter and mold it and shape it into all these different forms, then he will most certainly be able to take this body and create something even more glorious. Right, that we can expect something more glorious. And I think most of us would say that we are eager for something more glorious out of our bodies, right? Well, at least those of us who have eclipsed the age of 20, right? We are, we are looking for something better than what we currently have. And Paul says we will be changed into that. And then he gives us these four parallels that describe this body that is to come. Look in, Verse 42, Paul takes those illustrations of planting something uh, and something better coming out of it. And he says this in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Look at these, look at these parallel statements. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And then he summarizes them all by saying, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Let's think about these for just a minute. It is sown perishable or sown in corruption, right? Think about, uh, think about your body, right? You understand this. It is sown perishable, corrupted, uh, tending to decay. Now this, this may sound a little bit morbid, uh, for a Sunday morning, but I want you to, to think about this. Uh, our bodies, on, our bodies currently only trend in one direction, right? From the moment that you are born, uh, even as you grow and develop, there's really only so much mileage on that engine, right? That we are, we are all moving towards one terminal point. Uh, some of us may have more years than others, but our bodies are corruptible. They are perishable. They are trending towards decay. But Paul says that the new body when the old is sown into the ground, that the new one will be imperishable, will be incorruptible, that it cannot decay, that it will not fall apart. That's a beautiful thing. Paul says they're sown in dishonor. Dishonor. Think about... Uh, there's an interesting trend going on currently. Uh, most of us probably would say we don't enjoy going to funerals. Um, we'd rather go to a wedding than a funeral. But there's this kind of interesting trend. I remember listening to a funeral director talking. Uh, if you're, and this, you may even be old enough to remember uh, when this practice was done. But uh, years, generations ago, when someone died, 
uh, their corpse, their body was brought to your home, right? It was brought to the family home and you sat up with the dead, right? Um, I, for one, am probably glad that that practice is no longer uh, the norm. Uh, I, I myself even struggle uh, with open caskets. I find that to be a little strange myself. Uh, but then I remember talking to, or not talking to, but listening to, it was in a documentary, listening to a funeral director talk about kind of a disturbing trend uh, where over the past couple of decades, people now will remove the dead even from their own funerals. Where the casket and the corpse are no longer even pl- even present there, and what is present are simply just photographs, memories, music. And on the face of it, that sounds great, right? Like that's part of why we have funerals is that we can share in the memories. But think about what's going on underneath that. Is it not because we want to put death away from our mind's eye? That we don't really want to think about what's going to happen to us, right? That the body will be sown in dishonor. Think about what the deceased look like. Their former glory, their former beauty, gone. We don't really want to wrap our minds around that. And so we, we just kind of put it off. Uh, we don't even just, just close the casket. I don't want to see. And the funeral director's point was that that's actually, um, that's actually kind of a key moment of catharsis for a grieving family. It brings closure, uh, to a family that's grieving. It helps them to see not, not just to live in the past, but to see and remember that this is, this is the way that life on earth goes. Uh, and so, uh, this, Our bodies are sown, will be sown in dishonor, whether we like it or not, right? Cosmetic counters, clothing departments, even gym memberships partly exist because we can't reckon with the fact that this body is just a seed. We do everything we can to keep this seed alive. We can't reckon with the fact that one day it will decay, one day it will go into the ground, And it will yield and it will give way to something so much better. As Paul says, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. That whatever I am now, I will be something so much better then. Paul says we're sown in weakness. Could anything be weaker than a corpse? There's nothing that they can do We're sown in weakness, but we're raised in power. The Greek word for power is where we get our word dynamite from, right? Uh, This body to be will be powerful beyond imagination, will be capable of things we never dreamed possible. Just let your imagination run wild to think about what the raised body will be like. One of our... uh, One lady that I talk with on a regular basis likes to tell her kids that she's going to come back as Angelina Jolie. Not even Angelina Jolie will be beautiful forever. Her body, too, will be sown in weakness and dishonor. Right? The beauty, the the fading, passing beauty of this life is not what we are after. This is not what we want. It is simply a seed, right? However great you look now, you are just this. And what will be is what we want. What we will be is what 
we want. Paul says it is sown a natural body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. Right? What we have now, the physical, the natural, that's that we get that, this body trending towards decay, towards falling apart. And what we have, now this is important, what we have will still be a body. What we will be will still be a body, right? We're not going to be some disembodied spirit floating around in the clouds. That is not, that is not what we will be. But we will be spiritual bodies suited to the world that is to come. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. What it means for our bodies to be suited to the world to come. But before we get there, Paul makes another comparison. Look in verse 45. Now Paul makes a, makes his point by comparing Adam and Jesus, the first man and Jesus. He says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's not the natural that is first. Excuse me, it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. So Paul's saying the, the, the natural body comes before the spiritual. Uh, the first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What's Paul saying? Right? He's taking these two representatives of humanity. And this is, he does this in a couple different places. You have the first Adam, the first man, and then you have the last Adam. The last, uh, the last man, Jesus. All right. Uh, and all of humanity is represented by the first Adam. We are all Adam's children, man, woman, boy, girl. All of us are descended from Adam. And since we are descended from Adam, we share his nature. We are dust from dust to dust. Right. We will uh, we will decay just like Adam has decayed. And just like Adam, we have his sinful nature. We have, because Adam sinned, he gave us his sinful nature, and so we sin. And that means that we then are prone to death and decay. But then someone else comes along, another Adam, another representative. His name is Jesus. And because he has come, everyone everyone who is in him, everyone who places their trust in him will bear his nature. So while this flesh will go into the dust and decay, if I am in Jesus, I will be raised to new life. I will have a spiritual, uh, a spiritual nature suited to the world to come. So our current bodies are made in the mold of Adam, the man of dust, and like him, we will return to the dust But our new bodies will bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul says in Philippians 3.21 that we will have a body like his. And if you remember, if you've, uh, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus's, um, resurrection and appearance to his early disciples, uh, they were in a locked room, right? And, uh, they were, they were afraid of the, the authorities. They were afraid that what happened to Jesus was going to happen to them. And so Jesus appears in their midst. He doesn't open the door. He doesn't unlock the door. He just appears there. It doesn't say he breaks down the wall. 
So if my body is going to be like Jesus, I get to just appear in a room. How cool will that be? Right. But it's also but he's not a ghost. And what how do we know he's not a ghost? Because the disciples touch him. He eats with them. And so our new bodies will have new capabilities and yet share some qualities with the old. We will be changed to be like Jesus. And we will never return again to the dust of death. Which moves us to the next point, that uh, the resurrection means we will finally see the end of death. Paul transitioned into this thought by saying in verse 50, flesh and blood, what we are now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Right? We're perishable now. For some reason, whenever I use the word perishable, I always think of like the canned food drives we did in elementary school, right? The teacher would always say, bring non-perishable food items to the canned food drive. And I would ask my parents, what is non-perishable? It doesn't rot. It doesn't go away. Well, the bad news is, currently, we rot, right? We're perishable. But the kingdom of God is imperishable. So we can't inherit that as we are now. And so Paul says, we must be Changed. We must be transformed, made into something different. In other words, our bodies must be reconditioned for a new environment. I've got two illustrations, one fictional, one real. The first one, uh, the fictional one, comes from the, the little book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Uh, and this is a story in which Lewis pictures what, the, what life after death will look like. And right, he's got a, uh, there's a host of, of spirits, a host of people, uh, who take a bus to heaven, right? Uh, they are, they are coming from something like a purgatory, probably a hell, and they are coming to heaven, uh, on a tour bus to see what it's like. And when they get off the bus, they see a world that is amazing and beautiful and clear, and they realize that they themselves are not, that they're like wispy mist almost. And they see the people of heaven walking around, uh, enjoying this environment. But the main character talks about when he steps on the grass, that it hurts his feet because it's hard like diamonds, right? His body is not suited to that environment. He is unable to enjoy this world because his body is not fit for it. Maybe something that um, rings a little bit closer to home. Uh, if you've ever tried, or if you were an athlete or like the rest of us uh, have just tried some athletic competition, right? You know what it means to be in shape for a certain event, maybe, and uh, for or for the season. Then the off season rolls around. You're not working out as much. You're not training as much. Get a little flabby. Uh, and then when the season comes back around, and you try to compete, you realize that you are out of shape, right? Uh, or if I'm a, I'm a runner. Uh, and so uh, anytime you try for a new distance or if you've been out of running for a while and you try to do it again, it's amazing. And this seems to happen. The older the older I get, uh, if I take a break from running, when I try to do it again, it seems harder. Right. My body is not conditioned uh, for uh, for that, for the for the running. 
One of my favorite books when I was a, a young man was a book uh, called Into Thin Air, written by John Krakauer. Uh, and it's, a, it's his account of climbing Mount Everest with another group of people. And if you've ever, if you know anything about climbing high mountains, or in fact, if you were to take a trip, a plane trip to Denver, Colorado today, and you were to try to go running uh, in the Rocky Mountains, you would experience this. That as, uh, that as, the, as the altitude goes up, the amount of oxygen in the air goes down. The air is thinner. And so in order to condition themselves to climb this high mountain, Mount Everest, what climbers will do is they will go up to a camp, to like base camp, and they'll stay there for several days. And then they'll go up to another camp. They'll hike up to another camp, and they'll stay there for several days. And then they will hike up to even a third camp and stay there, and that'll be the camp that they launch, that they try to get to the summit from. But at each point, they have to stop and condition their bodies to a new environment. So also, Paul says, because we are perishable, we have to be changed in order to enjoy uh, the, the imperishable. We are mortal, and in order to inherit immortality, we must be changed. We must be transformed. When will this happen? How will that happen? Take a look at verse 54, excuse me, at verse, uh, at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a euphemism for, for, for death. Not everybody will be dead when this happens. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. That word moment is where we get our word atom from. In a, faster than a split second. Faster than you can blink an eye. You can't divide time any, in, any smaller than this. At the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So when will it happen? It will happen instantaneously when Jesus returns. On the last day, when the trumpet sounds for the last time to summon all of the dead out of their graves. When Jesus returns, we will be transformed. And when this happens, Paul says, death will finally be defeated. He called death the last enemy in verse 26. And now he says this in verse 54. When the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. I love the way Paul uses that word swallowed up. Doesn't it seem right now that death swallows everything? That everything is consumed by death. Our bodies, our minds, our beauty, our usefulness, our time. It all seems to go away, swallowed up. Death is too powerful for us to fight. That's where we get the old saying, right? There's two certainties in life, death and taxes. You might could wage war against the IRS. You cannot wage war against death. Death is too powerful for us. But the good news is death is not unbeatable. That's what Paul says here. Death is not unbeatable, though death seems to swallow everything in its path. There will come a day when death itself will be swallowed up and defeated. That death 
is an enemy that can be defeated, and he will be defeated by Jesus. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Death is pictured as this gruesome scorpion. They have these scorpions in, uh, in Palestine, in Israel, uh, where Paul and Jesus uh, lived, that when they sting you, I used to know the name of that scorpion, but when they sting you, it means death. Uh, it is a fatal sting, and that is how Paul pictures death, as this gruesome scorpion with a fatal sting. And what is death sting? It is sin. Sin. Sin is what leads to death. Without sin, there would be no death. And so death is the result of sin. And then he says the power of sin is in the law. Well, that's kind of curious. What does he mean by that? God's law is good. God's law is holy. So how is the power of sin in the law? Well, it is God's law that tells us what sin is. It is God's law that says you are a sinner. You are a lawbreaker. And it is God's law that gives the sentence. It is God's law that condemns us. If we were to keep God's law, then we would not need to be afraid, right? Then sin would have no power over us. We traveled a lot this past week, and uh, so if you drive, you know this familiar feeling. Uh, what happens as you're driving down the road and uh, you see the familiar car of the state trooper in the median? All right? Well, somebody said brakes, speeder, right? Uh, doesn't your doesn't your blood pressure, your uh, your heart rate go up just a little bit? Liar! All right, um, you you automatically look down at the speedometer. Where am I? Am I am I? Have I, did I set the cruise control a little too high? Am I am I within the five mile and over limit that I tend to go? Right? Uh, we get a little nervous. Why? Because we might be in violation of the law. That the law holds power over us. And if we were to be honest about our sin the way that the Bible is, we would realize that we're not just barreling down the interstate. We're barreling down the interstate, shooting at the police officer and cussing his mom as we do. That is how, uh, that is how offensive we are to a holy God. And so, the power of sin is in the law, and the sting of death is sin. But Paul says the sting of death is removed, that sin has no power over us. Why? Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Because Jesus has come and kept the law. Jesus has come and paid the law's penalty. So He has removed. If you are in Jesus, you are not the one barreling down the interstate. You're the one who's going just under the speed limit, waving at the officer, and you're going to send him a Christmas card. Now, that's not who you are really. That's, that's the record that Jesus gives you. Because Jesus has kept the law and paid your penalty, then the law has no power over you. 
You don't even have to check the speedometer. Your heart rate doesn't have to go up. The law has no power over you. And if the law has no power over you, then that means you don't have to be afraid of sin. And if you don't have to be afraid of sin, then death has no sting. Death is no longer a scorpion that you are afraid of. Death is simply the passage from this life into the next. That is the effect of Jesus. That is the victory of Jesus over death. And so, when we experience the resurrection, that means that we will finally see the end of death. So that's what's going to happen in the future. But why does that matter now? Kevin, that all sounds great, sounds really fancy. I sure would like to believe that. But why does that matter today? Paul says that not only uh, will this happen in the future, but because of those future promises, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be firm. We can be firm in the present, immovable, constant. I want you to think about this. We live in an age... When everything is shifting, or seems to be, everything is moving, everything is in upheaval, things are collapsing, it seems an age, uh, there, there's, there's an age to be afraid, right? We're worried. And in the midst of all of the change, in the midst of all of the upheaval and anxiety, Paul says, you are going to rise from the dead, be firm. You don't have to be afraid of the shifting sands of your day. Be firm. Do not fear. Be constant. We are not called to be a people of fear. We are not called to jump on the bandwagon of fear, trumpeted from both sides of the political aisle, trumpeted from every mountaintop, fear, anxiety. It's all falling apart. Paul says, no, we stand in Jesus. There is nothing to fear. There is nothing to be afraid of. We will be raised from the dead and death will be defeated. What else is there to be afraid of? Jesus would say, uh, do not fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and the soul. We believe in the one who has power over death. There is nothing to be afraid of. And then he says this, Be firm, immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, overflowing in the work of the Lord, right? Because we know the end of our story, we know what God will do, then we have confidence to carry out His work. We have confidence to do and be what He has called us to do and be. And we have confidence because, as He says, in the Lord our work is not in vain. That means that your life matters. Your work in the Lord matters. C.T. Studd wrote this poem that some of you may have heard before. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You can, have an in, it, you can have an eternal impact today because of what will happen in the future. You can be confident of that. We can be firm in the present. There will be a last day. 
there will be a judgment. And the question is, where will you stand on that day? Will you stand with Paul, who speaks of a victory that is won for us, not a victory that we can win for ourselves? Will your body be changed from feeble to glorious, but not by you? Death will be defeated, but not by me. Sins will be forgiven, are forgiven, but not because we deserve it. It is because Jesus lived and died and rose again. Jesus is the winner in this story. Jesus is the one who wins over sin and death. And the gospel is not, Jesus won, so now you go win too. The gospel is Jesus has won. Cling to Him. Cling to Him. Jesus is the victory. And only because I'm riding His coattails will I too receive the victory. This poem was written by Ann Cousins in the late 1800s. It's one of my favorites. I'll close with this. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. I hope that you make your stand on Jesus. He is the only life-giving Lord that there is. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the future seems so far off. The day when the trumpet sounds almost too far away to be taken seriously. But it will come. And its day is closer than it ever has been. It may even be today. So Lord, I pray that when the trumpet sounds, that we will be found trusting in You, believing in You, not in ourselves, trusting in Your life, Your perfect life, trusting in Your atoning death, clinging to the resurrection that purchases our own. Oh Lord, and if we are, I pray that we would be constant. Not wavering, not fearful, not fretful of the days ahead. Knowing that things will unfold just as you plan them to unfold. And that because Jesus holds us in his mighty hand, we have nothing to fear. Not even death itself. Lord, for those of us who don't have that confidence, who are not assured that we will see life with you after death. I pray this morning 
that we would believe on Jesus for the first time. That we would trust anew in Your saving work. I pray it in His name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together.